All right, we're in that chapter, chapter 44. We're looking at uh, 21 through 28, a little section there that uh, just kind of stood out to me. I know we normally take a few more verses in this, but uh, it's a, a really wonderful teaching I think you'll enjoy. The topic, the Lord promises to always reinstate his redeemed servants. The title of our message, just when you thought Israel was out, God pulls them back in. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are excited to be here this morning because you've promised to meet us here. You speak to us between the soul and the spirit and that deep place only you can reach. And you have to do it by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Lord, who indwells us and who's in this place. We together are the body of Christ and the building of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and individually as well. And so uh, help us to have ears to hear what you would say to our church and to us as individuals. As always, Lord, we want to understand this text in context, but also see the things that uh, it has to do with us here in our century, in our time, in our dispensation. We thank you in advance. We praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in is one of the iconic lines spoken by uh, Michael Corleone in Godfather Three. Seems an appropriate caption for the nation of Israel. Israel split in two after King David's death. The 10 northern tribes were called Israel with Samaria for their capital. The two southern tribes took the name Judah with Jerusalem for their capital. Israel was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC. It was so devastating that you still hear people reference the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Newsflash, in the Revelation we see all 12 tribes, so they're not as lost as people think. Ahead in prophecy was the conquest of Jerusalem by the Babylonian Empire ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar. Jerusalem fell in 586 BC. The Babylonians destroyed the city and Solomon's temple. Judah's inhabitants were exiled to Babylon. Who could survive such destruction and dispersion? Yet here was the Lord talking to them about being reinstated as his servant after the Babylonian captivity ended. It's a potent example of human faithlessness met by divine faithfulness. God's promise to Israel cannot fail. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, your way back to serving the Lord is paved with grace. And number two, your way forward to serving the Lord is paced by grace. Let's take a look at uh, the path of grace. So here's a question for us, uh, kind of harsh to begin with, but important. Are you faithless? Well, the Apostle Paul told Pastor Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, he cannot deny himself. That's 2 Timothy 2.13. I take we to mean believers. If could be when or since, and faithless can be unfaithful or disobedient. So yes, every believer has experience with being faithless in the sense of being unfaithful and disobedient. If you say you're 100% obedient to the Lord, then you're a liar and we've got you right there, right? So you don't need to have to look anymore. And so all of us, we just live with the understanding that the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do, because I wrestle with the old man. I wrestle with the, what's called the flesh, my propensity to sin that's left over in my unredeemed body. And so uh, we should be thankful that when we are unfaithful, disobedient, or as it says here, faithless, the Lord remains faithful to us. 
And realizing our own frailties will help us rejoice in God's gracious compassion for his chosen nation. And so we pick up this in verse 21. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Jacob, of course, the grandson of Abraham, his name would be changed by God to Israel. His boys were the 12 tribes. Previously here in chapter 44, they had been shown the folly of idolatry. Instead of forming idols of metal and wood, they ought to remember that God had formed them to be his servant among the Gentile nations. What a tremendous privilege uh, for anyone to be called the servant of God and to, to you know, it should be very humbling that you would serve God. You know, we understand that God can do a, a better job without us, right? Is there anybody here that thinks that God really needs us to get his point across? And he's chosen to use our frailty uh, and, and it really should humble us. And so God is saying to them, hey, uh, why form idols when uh, I have formed you and you can serve me and you can see eternal changes in the lives of people in these other nations that I've sent you to? Sadly, you can almost count on Israel backsliding. The book of Judges is one continuous story of uh, their cycle of backsliding. God, however, called them his servant. His calling of Israel is irrevocable. God cannot make it any clearer that the physical nation of Israel cannot be abandoned by him. He will not abandon them. So verse 22, I've blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Dr. Henry Thiessen, discussing what it means to be redeemed, said the term redemption alludes sometimes to the payment of a debt and sometimes to the liberation of a captive. To oversimplify, the human race owes a debt of sin that we cannot pay and are therefore held captive as slaves to sin and to Satan. In the Garden of Eden, immediately after our first parents sinned, the Lord said he would come as our redeemer to pay the debt and set us free. Sins are blotted out. Commentators say this is an accounting term. It refers to eliminating debt in a ledger. Another simple way of looking at redemption is that the Lord purchased your debt and replaced it with his righteousness. What a joy that would be in, in real life if this could be acted out, you know, where one day you're looking at your ledger and you're thinking, man, I'm just sin after sin after sin after sin, page after page after page. And then all of a sudden the Lord comes and works in your life and you open your ledger and there's nothing but his righteousness in there. And you're still thinking, Lord, but I, I fell short here and I didn't do this and I wanted to do that. And the Lord says, oh, you're my servant and you're accomplishing a work for me. Clouds are mentioned twice in verse 22. It describes fog and the mist that precedes the fog. And you and I should relate to that, right? Our sins hovered over and surrounded us like a thick tule fog. Are you worried about the fog this year with the, river, the lake being, uh, you know, the size that it is? You know, the fog has gotten better over the years since I've been here. Uh, I remember our first years in the 80s, man, week, two weeks where the, you never saw the sun. Uh, it was rough stuff. We like it as long as we don't have to go anywhere. It's, it's our weather, right? People talk about, oh, you want to go see the changing of the seasons? No, I want to go see the fog. <laughs> the Thule fog. Hey, you don't have fog named after you, do you? I mean, we had really severe fog in the San Bernardino Mountains. Uh, in fact, way worse than we have here. I remember nights driving home where it's freezing, but you've got your windows rolled down so you can hear dirt on the one side 
because if you hear dirt, you're off the road and you're going way off. And then on the, the other side, you're driving and your door is open and you're, and you're right on the line and you're kind of doing this thing. So that, but they don't call it, oh, well, we have the Burdu fog. And so we're proud of the Thule fog. Get proud of your... <laughs> Calvary Hanford, home of the Thule fog. No more foggy day schedule for us. Sing, O heavens, verse 23, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains. O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. From the stellar heavens, we journey to the center of the earth. From atop the highest mountain, we can see the forest for the trees. Everything we normally call nature is personified as worshiping God's redemption of mankind because the, uh, creation is also redeemed. And so let's call it what it is, creation, not nature. Uh, you know, people get into nature and all that. Nature is a killer. You realize that? When you watch nature shows, things die, right? Uh, there's the, uh, this is the apex predator. Okay, yeah, and it's crazy. Why don't you go help that wildebeest if you're so worried about it? <laughs> Do you ever think about that? Like what? This is the endangered, uh, you know, square rabbit or whatever it is. Uh, and here's the coyote. And so do something about it. But uh, nature is a killer. There's a line in uh, one of the movies, one of the zombie movies, it says, where the doctor says, nature is the greatest serial killer of all time. So if it's not another animal, and by the way, animals are starting to freak me out more than they normally do because they're showing up places they never showed up before. Uh, I saw something on Chicago the other day, oh, it was a while back, and at night you drive around Chicago and there's like coyotes and wolves patrolling the streets and getting into your trash. Coyotes don't bother me too much, but wolves are a problem. Uh, and so, you know, but so the creation, it's not nature, it's God's creation. But Paul wrote, the Apostle Paul, he said, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected, uh, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And so creation, obviously not what God intended, uh, and soon it will be. We have the tendency to assume that a material universe is somehow evil in and of itself, but that's not true. The future universe will be very much material, only without the curse brought upon God's original creation when mankind sinned. Dr. Michael Vlock writes, God has designed that our eternal home involves a real place for people with resurrected physical bodies. We will reside on a restored planet where we will fellowship with other saved saints and enjoy the beauties of the new creation. In Romans 11:29, we are told, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable or irrevocable. I go both ways, right? I've heard it both ways. How about you? Sure. Uh, it's a promise made to Israel. No matter Israel's faithlessness, God has remained faithful, right? Wouldn't you have to say that looking at human history and especially the history of Israel? That through much faithlessness, God has remained faithful and they are still his servant. It's not that he's still faithful to himself and to his own word, but he still is using them. He could say, well, I, you know, I'm going to be faithful to, but I, I don't need you guys. You guys are, you know, you're in time out. You know, you're, you're, uh, you're over here. 
But God says, no, you're my servant. Now, no matter doesn't mean it doesn't matter. The Assyrian conquest and dispersion, the Babylonian conquest and captivity, the Roman destruction and dispersion, the wandering of Jews for 2,000 years, hated and persecuted by every nation they fled to, wars and rumors of wars right up to the time we have today with what's going on in the Middle East. Throughout history, Israel suffered the consequences of faithlessness. And the worst for Israel is yet to come. What we commonly call the Great Tribulation, the prophet Jeremiah called the time of Jacob's trouble because obviously there'll be Gentiles and Gentile nations involved in the future tribulation, but its focus is the nation of Israel, persecution on that nation so that they will turn to Jesus Christ as their savior, as their Messiah once and for all. And the Bible says all Israel that survives the tribulation will be saved. And yet it's, you know, a few chapters into it and you realize, hey, this is worse than anything that's ever happened before. Revelation 4 through 18 will blow your mind. Secondly, in verses 24 through 28, your way forward serving the Lord is paced by grace. Is emphasizing the grace of God's faithfulness in our faithlessness too easy? Well, you may have heard the term easy believism. It's a derogatory comment that assumes if you preach grace, you don't encourage real discipleship. I had somebody here in town call it greasy grace one time. I thought, that's clever. You know, it's like you can slip through, I guess, and never have any consequences. Uh, Well, in in response to the accusation of easy believism, Dr. Charles Ryrie said, it's not easy to believe. Our understanding of discipleship is summed up by something Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Nothing easy about that. Many of you, uh, and this is more of a localized thing, but it happened to me too, many of you have a Roman Catholic background, uh, especially, I'm not saying anything about other ethnicities, but if you're Italian or Portuguese, uh, very strong. And man, you are going against your family when you come to know Christ. And so it's not easy for you to believe and to go to your family and say, I now go to Calvary Hanford where some crazy ex-Catholic is instead of here where the priest, you know, it's a, you know what I'm talking about. And if you're a married couple, as soon as your baby is born, it's on, right? Is this going to be a pedo-baptism? Are you going to baptize your baby? You're going to wait until they get older like those Protestants and stuff. I mean, it's, I've had over the years, and if you've done this, I'm not, you know, it's a struggle, I understand. A lot of people have come up and said, Pastor Gene, what should I do? My nana or whatever they call their grandpa and grandma, you know, and stuff, they're pushing me for baptism. Can I baptize them in the Catholic Church? And, and then, you know, all this. And I said, well, you know, on the one hand, Naaman, after he was healed, he said, hey, I have to go into this temple. You know, it's my job. Can you forgive me? And, you know, the prophet did. I said, but I said, if it was me, the answer is no. Uh, I just, it's your chance to be a testimony and say, hey, I don't want to fight about baptism, but, you know, we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, et cetera, et cetera. But it's hard. So there is no easy, they mean, you know, you're um, telling people they're saved when they're not really saved. But it's not easy to believe. I've concluded that if you are not being accused of preaching too much grace, then you're not preaching enough grace. 
The Apostle Paul understood this when he said, But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. And that was his whole answer really to that, is that no, certainly not. That's not what I'm saying, he says. He anticipated the objection that he was giving believers a license to sin, but he was not. That's not what his heart was, and that's not what God was teaching them. God was teaching them that the grace of God uh, will help them to overcome sin and that they need to walk in that grace every moment of their lives. Twice the Lord calls Israel his redeemed servant. The remaining verses tell us what makes a servant faithful, and it turns out this is a single sentence in Hebrew, one of the longest in the Old Testament. Ever heard of Dr. Abraham Maslow, psychologist? I have. He took, I know it's rhetorical, you know, if you all yell yes, I'm going to be upset, so what are you supposed to do? We're just the poor people. Anyway, Maslow took a radical approach in his theory of human psychology. He decided to study, uh, rather than study dysfunctional people with uh, mental illnesses, he decided to study healthy people in order to recommend what he called their self-actualizing lifestyle to those who are struggling. And that would be a great approach if there were any healthy, self-actualized people to find. And it's not just that, but seriously, the Bible says there is none righteous, not even one. And that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. So who's to study? Well, here's a people that have a life that seems better on the surface, but it's not. Because their heart is still darkened. And they're still living in the kingdom of darkness. They're just doing it better. They've got, they're more used to the dark than somebody else, I guess. But anyway, and so, so this doesn't work. In the next sentence, in this long sentence in Hebrew, we're encouraged to look at the one person who did live a perfect, sinless life. The emphasis is not at all on us. We are not told how to serve, only to look at Jesus, the servant. And this is liberating to me, and it saves you on your uh, wallet because you don't have to buy books on serving. Uh, you know, because every there's always you know here are the twelve things you do to serve the Lord. Start doing this. Here's the program. How to improve your serve was the name of one of the books and stuff. And here the Lord says, look, I'm going to in one sentence take you through a few things. And the bottom line is, this isn't everything the Lord might have to say, but He says, look, you just need to look at me and follow my example. You do that, I empower it, and we're good. And so verse, 40, uh, verse 24, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. The Lord says he is our Redeemer. If you need a Redeemer, you're helpless to help yourself. Uh, you, you've seen some of these, you know, uh, Roman times movies or even the Middle Ages where they've got the slaves, they're locked in a cage, chained together. Uh, there's no way that they can escape. There's no way out. Uh, and that, that's the picture that the Lord says, hey, hey you, you need to be redeemed. You can't do anything about your sin and you can't do anything about your captivity and your slavery, but I have done everything necessary. You've heard it said that Jesus paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. That's true. That's true. You cannot pay for your sins. 
Even if you could, from today forward, never sin again, if you could. Maybe somebody developed, you know, they had AI develop a never sin again pill, right? Doesn't matter, you've already sinned up to that point and you were born with a sin nature. And, and sin was imputed to you on top of that. You're a hell-doomed sinner. Uh, there's nothing you can do to redeem yourself, but the Lord stepped forward and says, I will be your redeemer. I will take my, your sin upon myself, give you my righteousness, and when the Father sees you, he will see you as his righteous servant. I was gonna bring Gideon into this a little bit, but uh, you know, I didn't wanna run out of time. But, uh, you know, Gideon, when, when the Lord first called him, he was hiding in a threshing, or in a, a vat, I think, and he was doing a hiding thing with the threshing uh, because of the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord came to him and said, look at you, you mighty servant of God. Yeah, no, you got the wrong address here. You know, I mean, <laughs> is somebody, you know, somebody else here? Yeah, sometimes people say, they'll call me sir, and I'll say, oh, you know, that was my dad, you know, and stuff. But that's what Gideon's like, what are you talking about? And God said, no, you're, you don't understand. You're my servant. You're going to get this done. And uh, Gideon, you know, he's, he's okay. He's better than Samson, but he's still, you know, he had some goofy times in his life. But anyway, you need a redeemer, and Jesus is that redeemer and the only redeemer because the redeemer had to be a God-man combination. He had to be fully God and fully man at the same time. It says here, he formed you from the womb. Now, this applies to the nation as a whole. God called Abram to follow him and give birth to a new nation. God said, I'm going to make a new nation out of you uh, that never existed before, and it's, it's going to be born that way. We see God as creator. The apostle Paul wrote, for by Jesus all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things and in him all things consist. That's Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Creation is the first great witness to Almighty God. Its majesty ought to overwhelm. In context, however, I think we're to understand that Jesus creating the universe is a part of him being a servant. Because back in eternity past, when the Godhead got together and they said, we want to make man in our image, all right? Then someone had to step forward and say, well, then here's what's going to have to happen. We're going to need a universe and a galaxy and a solar system and a planet with atmosphere on which to have this interaction. And so Jesus, who is, we're told is the creator in Colossians chapter 1, in a sense, you see him serving this purpose, creating a place for us to be created and then born so that we could come to know God. Uh, and we know, that, you know, one of these days, the, the earth is going to be folded up like a garment that is going to be destroyed by fire. And we'll have the new heaven and the new earth, as I said before, a material place, not ether, ethereal or just spiritual. We're not going to be floating around. We're going to be in our physical but perfect glorified bodies. We will have perfect free will. We will have free will that is unable to sin. And you say, wait a minute, how's that possible? God has free will that is unable to sin, doesn't he? We have to say that God has free will and we have to say that he cannot sin. Otherwise, if you take either one of those away, he's not God. And so through all of this, God will finally have us in a place where we are, as he intended, 
able to exercise our free will in his image, but not able to sin. And the Lord is the one who um, really provides for all of that as our servant. Verse 25, he frustrates the signs of babblers and drives diviners mad. He turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness. There's a lot of opposition to biblical Christianity. Uh, some is supernatural, some seems more natural, but it often has a demonic force behind it. Men give themselves titles to promote their opposition and their, uh, you know, wanting to go against the Lord. Whether they are babblers, and this would be those who are familiar with secret powers, they're mumbling. I get up here and it'd be easier to study if I could just mumble, right? You know, it's a man, that was some great mumbling and stuff. But you, you've you know, seen this portrayed probably. And uh, these, you know, they're, so they're hearing from the spirits or whatever. Diviners, wise men, uh, like the Magi. Uh, so this is our Christmas study. Uh, their analyses and proposed solutions are all foolishness. Study philosophy, study psychology, study politics. It's all foolishness compared to biblical Christianity. And here's why. They can never admit that salvation is by grace through faith and that there's something wrong with human beings. Everything start, they might not say it at the very beginning, but their goal is to say, hey, we know how to improve human beings. Communism is the way to go. Everybody will be equal. We'll all work really hard. You know, oh no, capitalism is the way to go. Uh, no, I don't want to get stoned or anything, but capitalism is a human invention. It's not the way to go ultimately because we know ultimately, you know, theocracy is the way to go. Bending the knee to Jesus Christ and having his attitude and, and, and all that stuff. But what I'm saying is that all of these theories and they all, they all postulate that men can be good by following these rules and regulations or whatever it might be. And God starts out by telling the truth. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I've told you before how sometimes you go into a situation, and I was just talking about this morning where someone is terminally ill, right? You might as well get right into it and say, hey, you are going to die. And so let's talk about salvation. Let's talk about Jesus Christ. And so, um, you know, these are, oh, no, no, we, we can improve. No, you can't. Not without the Lord. Not without uh, his salvation. Everything else is man-centered and it's doomed. Verse 26, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers. In other words, God backs you up. God has your back. We like that terminology, don't we? God's got my back. He's got my six. And says, so, yeah, I'm going to back up what I tell you to say. When I send you to do something, I'm going to be there with you. And uh, Old Testament servants... Elijah, Elisha, all of those guys, God backed up their word or his word whenever he sent them somewhere. Uh, New Testament apostles promised that signs and wonders would accompany their gospel preaching, and it did. It continues today in the church age in which we live. We're continuationists. However, the New Testament does insist that our greatest testimony in this dispensation is to show God's strength in our weaknesses. And we don't always understand that. I always think it would be better for God to show his strength in my strength, right? And that I would have miracles coming out of my fingers or something like that, right? Like a superhero. And God says, no, nah, you know what I think is going to do it for you, Gene? A nice neurological disease. Uh, that's, you know, we, I've been, uh, you know, 
I, I was going to bring you in on this, but I, I, I didn't know your vote wasn't going to count much anyway. So, you know, we're just going to deal with this. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm for it. I've learned, I, <laughs> I, I don't like to talk about it too much, but I've learned so much having Parkinson's disease. Number one, I don't want to have it. I've learned now. But <laughs> after I got through at that level that, no, I mean, as far as, you know, I know you think, well, Pastor Gene, you've always been such a deeply compassionate man, you know. Anyway, uh, <laughs> thank you. But uh, hey, you, you do, you know, you, you, you can't, you can't have compassion on people if you haven't suffered. I mean, you just can't. And, and so, you know, the more you suffer, the more compassion. I'm at my compassion threshold right now, though. But anyway. <laughs> but no, the, the Lord's good. He gives you what you need. Uh, I remember one time I was reading the, autobi- or the biography of H.A. Ironside, the great Bible preacher, and um, there was a line in it where the Lord said to him, I, I know that you need a starving right now. You need to starve a little bit. And I thought, wow, that's, you know, I'm glad Ironside went through that so I don't have to. But anyway... <laughs> Who says to Jerusalem, verse 26, you shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places. Isaiah prophesied the rebuilding of Judah before the city was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. He prophesied 150 years before these events. And what happens next is truly astonishing. Verse 27, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, He's my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So let's get right into it. Isaiah announced Cyrus by name at least a century before he was even born. Critics come along and they say, this is not possible because it's not possible. That's essentially their argument. They say, they say we don't believe God can prophesy something like that. Even though the Bible's full of other things that we could show them, they say that's not possible, and so it must have been written after the fact, and now you know, the Bible is lying to you. This really isn't Isaiah saying that. You and I, don't, you don't have a problem with that, do you? That God would know the future 150 years ahead of time, who created the universe and, and did all the things that we've been talking about? Of course this is a prophecy. So King Cyrus of Media and Persia, the Medo-Persian Empire, he would conquer Babylon. Isaiah even prophesied how it would happen. It says, he says to the deep, be dry and I will dry up your rivers. The great Euphrates River flowed into Babylon under its massive impregnable wall. God suggested to Cyrus that he divert the flow and enter the city secretly along the path of the river. And that's the way the historians write it for us. Cyrus would say, and this is from 2 Chronicles, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord, his God, be with him. Let him go up. Ooh, I did a double. Oh, wow. Did you ever do that with your iPad? Hit it two, two times? No, I guess you didn't, right? So, uh, once again, the emphasis is on the Lord and what he does for us. And in this case, he says, if there's a pagan king in our way of accomplishing our will, forget about it. I'll take care of it. I'll either destroy him or I'll build him up to be a follower. Nebuchadnezzar, who had destroyed Jerusalem, later in, in Daniel writes the fantastic tract that he sends to the whole world about his conversion to God. It's an amazing thing. God's master class for servants teaches one lesson. Look at me, 
at what I've done for you, you do likewise, enabled by God the Holy Spirit. Over and over and over again, God is faithful towards faithless Israel and reinstates them to serve him. How can he not do the same with us, believing Gentiles? He does. We read it earlier, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. It's beyond wonderful to be reinstated to our service. It's also a dangerous moment because we have a tendency, a human tendency, to want to continue in the flesh. As soon as God brings us back to a place where we're walking in the spirit, we start looking for things that we ought to be doing uh, rather than just waiting on the Lord. And that's why the Apostle Paul strongly reminds us in Galatians 3.3, are you a fool? After beginning with the spirit, you're not going to be made complete by the flesh. And so it's a life of walking with and in the spirit, uh, seeking the Lord for his direction and not trying to be approved in the flesh. Get back on the path and let your pace be set by the grace of God. Now, in the very good Bible knowledge commentary, we read this concerning Paul's teaching uh, in Tim or to Timothy. The commentator says, Jesus will not deny even unprofitable members of his own body. True children of God cannot become something other than children, even when disobedient and weak. Christ's faithfulness to Christians is not contingent on their faithfulness to him. So the author here unequivocally states that once you are a child of God, you can't become anything else. It's a big debate, obviously, but that's why I like to talk about Lot. Lot, the nephew of Abraham. Here's a guy that was quarrelsome, selfish, opportunistic, materialistic, and compromising. Uh, at the, the biggest thing that he did is the most sinful thing, he had two daughters. He allowed uh, himself to get drunk uh, with his two daughters. One night, his first daughter slept with him, and the next night, his other daughter slept with him because they were worried about there not being anybody left in the world after Sodom and Gomorrah were you know, destroyed. Fool me once, remember that? I mean, okay, so you get drunk and you sleep with your daughter, that's bad. Let's get drunk the next night. I mean, come on. I mean, so this is Lot. This is, this is Lot. So then all of a sudden you're reading Second Peter and he says, God delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul. Unless Peter had written what he did, you would in no way ever imagine that Lot was righteous, that he was saved. When you believe God, you are declared righteous, not because of anything you have done, but on account of everything the Lord has done to redeem you. A commentator from the Reformed camp, very conservative, put it this way, Lot was simultaneously righteous and sinful. That's a mind bender. Forget Lot now and think of yourself. I am simultaneously righteous and sinful, right? I'm a Christian. I have been declared righteous. Because I believe God. I believed God in 1979 and it was accounted unto me as righteousness. I was justified by faith. And, and I became a Christian, was born again. Am I actually righteous? Well, no, we established that earlier. There's none really righteous, not one except for Jesus. And so I am, all of us who are Christians are simultaneously righteous and sinful at the same time. But we are growing in the Lord. We are walking with the Lord. We're wanting to be Daniels and not 
Samsons, we certainly don't want to be Lot. You ever have anybody come up to you who's known you for years and say, I didn't know you were a Christian? Oh, man. Wow. Whose fault is that? I mean, it's, it's a killer when that happens. And so all of us have this problem. Jesus dealing with the woman caught in adultery. I, I think this fits here and it goes well and I love it. So you, you remember the story. They, they brought this woman out. I don't, no one knows what happened to the man. It was probably a kind of one of those planted situations where they wanted to catch Jesus because the law said she needs to be stoned. What do you say? And they were always trying to get Jesus to trip himself up, you know, by, hey, he disobeys the law, so therefore, how can we follow him? And so Jesus, you know, he stoops down, he's writing in the dirt. No one knows what he wrote, but they all tell you what he wrote because they all have a theory and stuff. So, but I don't know. And so finally, everybody leaves one by one. And he's alone with the woman. And what many people would, in their practice, they, they don't actually say that, but in their practice, what they would do is say, now, how are you going to prove that you're not going to do this again? Do you have a history of, here, here's a, an intake questionnaire that I'd like you to take right now. Because we want to see where this is coming from. And, and in order for you to come to fellowship, we need to accomplish some things in your life first. Before we can take the A off of your dress, you know, that kind of a thing, we need to figure out all this stuff. And Jesus looked at her and he goes, where are your accusers? And she said, no man accuses me, Lord. And, and you know what Jesus said? You know, go and sin no more. And, and with that, you know, I think that's an enabling go, right? He's saying, hey, go and sin no more. I've told you that you can do this. You know what, lady, you're going to sin. It doesn't have to be adultery, but because you're going to sin. But you can always go and sin no more. You can always come back because you're going to be faithless, but I will remain faithful. You are my servant. And, and that's what the Lord's saying to each one of us today. Maybe you're a backslidden Christian. I'm sure there's got to be at least one or two of you here, Right? Three, somebody said three, so they're all in this front row. But anyway, there's nobody in the front row, by the way. Um, maybe you're back, so you know what the Lord would say? Well, come to me, go and sin no more. What's, what's, what's so difficult about that? You remember when you got saved and how God washed over you and how you were like set free and things that you had tried for years to deal with, all of a sudden they were dealt with? That same power you know, it, it doesn't get weaker. The Holy Spirit doesn't get weaker and shrivel over, over time. He, you know, you should be yielding more to him. And so just this morning, go and sin no more. Come forward if you need to. Pray with one of the guys. Maybe you're not a Christian at all. You're, you're in real trouble. No, you really are. Because, uh, you know, you're not righteous and you haven't been declared righteous. And that's what you need. Your ledger is full of sin. And you are in the Thule fog. And, and I mean it, you, you need to get saved. You need to come to Jesus. And so again, come on down. Let us pray with you. God is so good, is he not? Amen. Amen.